National Catholic Register. This is Register Radio, bringing light and clarity to the news and topics that affect your life. On December 1st, the U.S. Supreme Court will hear what some say is the most consequential abortion case in a generation, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. The question on the minds of many, will the Supreme Court overturn Roe vs. Wade? George Mason law professor Helen Alvarez weighs in. I'm Jeanette DeMello, Editor-in-Chief and Executive Director of the National Catholic Register. I'm joined by my co-host Matthew Bunsen, who is Washington Bureau Chief of EWTN News. We've been watching this case for a year now, it seems, uh, and in a hearing that so many ears will tune into this week, the nation's highest court will hear arguments in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. This case challenges the constitutionality of a Mississippi law which limits most abortions after 15 weeks. For context, Roe v. Wade, that 1973 decision and the subsequent 1992 Planned Parenthood versus Casey decision made abortion legal nationwide up until 24 weeks. The Dobbs case has set off heated debate across the country, and pro-lifers and abortion advocates seem to agree only on one thing. This case strikes at the heart of Roe v. Wade and legalized abortion federally. Here to talk about what's at stake in this pivotal moment is Helen Alvarez. Helen is professor of law at George Mason University Law School, where she teaches family law, law and religion, and poverty law. And uh, Helen has also graciously been uh, a contributor to the register. She often uh, has been on this show and has been a source for many of our articles. Welcome back to Register Radio, Helen. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So, Helen, you are one of a whole generation of pro-life lawyers who kind of came of age in the wake of Roe. Uh, You've devoted much of your professional life to overturning this law, as well as really helping the culture to understand why it doesn't work for women or society as a whole. What does this moment mean to you? Well, I told my husband to get ready for us to turn over our own car and set it on fire if we win. I mean, I I would have to say, I mean, I was always conscious of the issue because I was raised in a, you know, aware of the news, Catholic home. Roe came down when I was near 13. And what really happened is I came to work at the U.S. Bishops Conference without a lot of well, without any activism on the issue. And I was asked to go through the pro-life files in response to a uh, document production demand. We were sued by one of the the men who founded the National Abortion Rights Action League, claiming we had messed in politics, you know, Hmm. against our tax exempt status. nasty business, you know? (laughs) Yes. And so I was told to go through every single document in the pro-life office file since the invention of the pro-life office. And that was my first big task as a attorney with the U.S. Bishops Conference. I was in the general counsel's office. And I read these documents, and what struck me was that the present law was lawless. I mean, really, even in the last trimester, every state must permit abortion if the mother's, quote, life and health is at stake, and health is defined to include psychological unhappiness at being pregnant. So I'm thinking, oh my gosh, we have unlimited abortion. I'm reading the arguments from both sides, 
And from the very beginning of looking through those files, I saw it as a matter of an, it, it was it was the movement for truth. That's why I've never seen right. it as as a single issue. It was the movement for reason, empirical evidence, science. Use your eyes. Use your heart. Use them all together. It was never primarily for me because I had sentimental feelings about babies. I have them, but that's not why I got involved in the movement. Right, and nor is it because you're Catholic. I mean, right. one of the things people are saying when the uh, the U.S. bishops try to speak to President Biden, who's a Catholic, right, about abortion, they say, "Oh, you're messing religion and politics." But that's not this. That's uh, uh, not it at all. It not has to do. What you're saying, it's it's all about truth. It's all about the evidence. And yeah. I want to turn to that in just a minute because you uh, wrote, uh, co-authored a brief all about that evidence. But before we do, you know, it's, it's important to understand that cases are going before the Supreme Court all the time uh, related to abortion and to state laws on abortion. So why did the Supreme Court pick the Dobbs appeal uh, when there are so many other cases um, that they c- could have chosen to review? That's a great question. Let me make a background point, which I think is super interesting. When the Supreme Court renders a decision on something as big as abortion and claims the Constitution says X, one of the ways we know that decision is wrong, in addition to it really bears no relationship to the actual history or tradition of the country or the language of the Constitution, is that the country doesn't accept it. And so you get hundreds, sometimes thousands of laws in a year, or I should say bills, proposing Mm -hmm. to become laws, to, to basically chip away at or overthrow Roe v. Wade and the 1992 case that affirmed it, Planned Parenthood versus Casey. So right away, when you have that much upset and backlash to an opinion, one of the, um, the grounds of what we call stare decisis, the court should respect prior opinions, is missing. And mm-hmm. what is that? The ground that the country has accepted this opinion and the court does not have to act like a legislature constantly drawing these fine lines between what is and was not allowed. So that's kind of a backdrop to say, yeah, there's hundreds of laws that could have come before the court. What's important about the current time has two sides. One, pro-life groups decided perhaps there were enough justices on the Supreme Court now who don't make stuff up, who actually read the Constitution and don't read rights into it that are completely In other words, they're not activists. They're not activists. No, they respect both the text of the Constitution and the history and tradition of the country. So there were people who saw that and said, now's the time to bring a case up. And then on the side of the court, you know, there's many reasons why they accept some cases and reject others. But the import of this case is that it bans abortion at a time when abortion is not only protected, but that prior decisions have said there's almost no state interest that could overcome a woman's interest in having the abortion. That is the second trimester, a 15-week unborn human being. So by accepting this case with the question presented, formally question presented in the brief, is, you know, can a state regulate or even prohibit abortions in the second trimester, pre what the court calls viability? This is a direct attack on Roe and Casey um, at the level of the second trimester abortion. And 
a lot of people believe the court wouldn't have taken it if the law was, well, you know what the law is. All abortions are okay. People right. believe they took it in order to say something different. Right. And it just goes back to that point you made in context that this this just isn't settled. And right. it isn't, it is especially not settled now. I mean, you can even see a shift in public opinion uh, that many of them are, don't accept. Um, they're okay with banning it after 15 weeks. Uh, oh, they, yeah. they don't even accept where... Uh, you know, where Casey and, and Roe were. And so it's it's yep. extremely important to just recognize that now. There's precedent, yes, but it's not settled. Matthew wants to jump in. Come on, Matthew. Yeah, I was, I was going to say that uh, we are in somewhat of an unusual set of circumstances because we have uh, in our president at the moment, President Joe Biden, a Catholic uh, who nevertheless uh, is leading an administration that at every turn has worked to expand abortion and has urged the Supreme Court to uphold Roe v. Wade. Uh, the, the Biden administration, though, argued rather forcefully, didn't it, that the Mississippi law is something of a, quote, profound intrusion on equal standing of women in society. Yeah. But I, I think you'd say that's one thing that isn't at stake here, and certainly your amicus brief you filed says as much. Yes. Uh, so, um, again, I always have to, this is the lawyer and the teacher in me, have to give a little bit of the backdrop. The backdrop is that Roe did not invent the abortion right because it said it was necessary for women's equal protection. It invented it because it said that people being free regarding decisions about childbearing is a part of some privacy guarantee that is not in the text of the Constitution, but implied by due process language in the 14th Amendment. So, okay, it's a privacy right. But in Casey versus Planned Parenthood and later cases, you began to get language, first from Justice O'Connor and later from Justice Ginsburg, that women's equality in society is at stake <clears throat> with abortion. What did they mean? Well, they were really vague. Let's, yeah, anybody who thinks that just because Supreme Court justice is really smart, you get crystal clear opinions, should read more than a few. And what they sort of <laughs> seem to indicate, they didn't really give any supporting footnotes with any actual material <laughs> to say so. They, they used like pro-choice political scientists and lawyers who just, you know, raised their fist and, and said the same. But the actual empirical claims seem to be, listen, if women did not have the right to destroy a developing life in the womb that is their child, they will not be seen as equals in society. They won't make their economic and educational way forward. So Teresa Collette, Erica Bakiaki, and myself, along with Elizabeth Kirk, decided that even though that wasn't the actual legal basis for Rowan Casey, it loomed so large in the court's mind that we should address that argument head on, which is what we did with a highly empirical brief that shows that women's uh, even just material success in society is not due to a right to uh, extinguish the lives of their children. And, and Helen, I really want to draw you out a little bit on that, because uh, as you said, it, it, for you... Uh, as a lawyer, as a researcher, as a scholar, this has been about the pursuit of the truth and, mm -hmm. and the facts, the empirical evidence. What is some of that evidence that y you speak to? And I would mention here, look, the United States is one of the most uh, liberal abortion laws in the, in the world. Oh, yeah. And so others are following evidence in, in other countries more so than we are. Yeah. What's, what's some of that evidence? Again, so a couple of things. One, most other countries had a democratic process where 
where you could actually put forward arguments on both <laughs> sides. We had this rammed down our throats by seven men on the Supreme Court in 1973 um, without evidence, with just individual justices' own personal perspectives on the science and on the justice of it. So, um, so other countries have looked at this. I also think the argument that we are among just a tiny fraction of countries uh, that allow abortion to this extent is a powerful argument, and it was made in another amicus brief that I think should influence the court. Our arguments were as follows. The other side was basically claiming if you don't have babies, <laughs> you can make more money and get a better education. I mean, it's right. just, that was their argument, really. You can be an Olympian uh, athlete. There exactly. You go. So um, they claim that on sort of like intuitive grounds, listen, it's just better. You can spend more money and time on yourself. What we did was a couple of things. Number one, we looked at the major study where they made that claim, <clears throat> which is a book called The Turnaway Study. It was funded by abortion advocates at an abortion advocacy university and published in abortion advocacy journals. And they mm. claimed to show that women who were turned away from having late-term abortions at clinics had far better economic and educational and life outcomes than women who got their abortion. Oh, my gosh, to turn dozens of pages of brief into, uh, into, a, into a brief argument. What we showed was that the turnaway right. study was absolutely bunk. A bunch of the women who said didn't get abortions actually went and got them at another clinic. A bunch of the women who got abortions turned around and did what we in the pro-life movement see so often and had a replacement child. So the idea mm -hmm. that they were comparing women who didn't have abortions with women who did turned out to be completely muddled. Plus, so many of the women who were super distressed at their abortion dropped out of the study, like the vast, vast, vast majority dropped out. That, And we know that the most troubled women drop out of these studies because they don't want to talk about their abortion for the next five years, that these women's upset with abortion was not mentioned. So anyway, first we attacked what they claim was their main study. Second, we noticed something really interesting. Abortion rates and ratios in the United States dropped like a stone after 1990. Every year you had fewer women per thousand of childbearing age, and you had fewer abortions per total number of pregnancies. And in fact, since 1990 to today, those figures have dropped by 50%. Wow. A huge drop. But we noticed that during that time, all of women's accomplishments were soaring. So uh -huh. while they were getting fewer total abortions, fewer abortions per thousand women of childbearing age, and fewer abortions per pregnancy, so bringing forth more children to birth, women began to, or I should say women continued to, but then soared in, uh, gaining in graduate education, undergraduate education, in which they, they have now exceeded men. Women got more um, judgeships, more state legislative, more federal legislative jobs. Women's economic outcomes went way up. Women's founding of businesses soared. So in other words, even though it was the case that women's... Um, social statistics were improving in the 1970s when, by the way, remember, we had the benefit of the civil rights law and a raft of feminist legislation advancing women at work, at home, at school, and we, we charted all of that in the brief. So yes, women's social position was, was uh, increasing then while abortion rates and ratios were increasing, but then when abortion rates and ratios dropped like a stone, women continued to soar. 
Then we also just pointed out, finally, that the studies that claimed you could link it to abortion had all kinds of scientific flaws. In large part, really what you were seeing is um, they were conflating the effects of contraception and abortion, or they were drawing um, correlation but not causation. Anyway, we made a whole host of scientific observations about those studies as well. So it it was a very packed brief. Uh, It has dozens of pages of appendices that are just numbers and charts. And uh, 240, more than 240 co-signers, so that's important yes. to know. All of whom had JD, MD, or PhD, because they, cause the, the rap on the pro-life movement is that we're stupid. <laughs> <laughs> or they used to call us, they used to call us female impersonators. So we were like, wow, there's a lot of not stupid, not female impersonators that would sign on to this. I'm speaking to law professor Helen Alvarez of George Mason School of Law. We're talking about whether the Supreme Court will overturn Roe v. Wade and their decision on the upcoming Dobbs case. This is Register Radio. Helen, I'm going to ask you to have a crystal ball. I mean, everybody wants the crystal ball to see what will the Supreme Court decide? What do you think is going to be the outcome? What are the possible outcomes, I Uh. guess, in the Supreme Court decision? So, ah, this is the game, and none of us really knows the answer, so it is better to answer the question you asked, which is, you know, what are the range of outcomes? outcomes. Mm -hmm. Uh, The court would not likely have accepted it if it was just going to say, yeah, you know the law. We don't have to look at this. The law is set. So what might they do? Some of the, the two major possibilities are, number one, they find a way to leave Roe and Casey in place, but say, you know what? Yes, there is a constitutional right to abortion, but the state's interests which can trump even constitutional rights. I mean, a state can trump your free speech, your religious freedom. Well, it can also trump your uh, freedom to have an abortion in cases where the state's interests are compelling. And they could begin to say the state's interests become compelling earlier than prior cases had recognized. That Mm -hmm. is the state's interest in um, uh, recognizing and protecting human life. Um, Another possibility is that they say what we hope they will all say, which is Roe and Casey were completely made up. They're fiction. The way to determine whether a right exists that is nowhere in the text of the Constitution is not to just take a poll of nine unelected justices and say, how do we feel today? But rather, it's to look at the history and tradition of the United States beginning when um, due process, the 14th Amendment, was applied to the states in the 1800s to today and say, is it the case in the United States that we have assumed a right to abortion so axiomatically that almost nobody would countermand the, the, the conclusion of course there's a right to abortion in the Constitution. Mm -hmm. No, that's obviously not the case. If you actually look at the test for finding non-textual constitutional rights, that is, is this thing so much a part of the history and tradition of the United States, like parents deciding about their children's schooling, parents teaching their children a foreign language, blood relatives living together? I mean, those are the kinds of things they have found previously as non-textual constitutional rights. Is abortion like those? No. Abortion was banned in every state and territory for most or all of pregnancy, for most or all reasons. It's a matter for the states. It was never meant to be a coast-to-coast, deeply cherished constitutional right. That's what we hope, they say, to really read the Constitution correctly. Helen, I want to go back to this kind of pivotal moment that we seem to be in. I mean, the the way that uh, the disposition of the court is one of those aspects of this very pivotal moment. 
Um, there's also the fact that public opinion, I mean, the, the LA Times came out with a, with a headline that, that really indicated that while uh, maybe close to the majority of the country is so-called supportive of Roe versus Wade, they are also okay with um, a 15-week uh, ban. You right. know? And, and so, that is the weakness. The other side knows people really are very uncomfortable with late abortion. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is th- we're in such a key moment. Uh, a, a decision overturning Casey and, and Roe would um, risk the, the, the court's reputation. What do you the, make well, of that? I, I think what's really interesting, the argument's been coming out that an argument excuse me, that in a decision that leaves Casey and Roe in place is actually the greater risk to the mm-hmm. court's reputation. And and you and I wouldn't be having this conversation about the court's reputation unless Justice Roberts had been <clears throat> out and about giving various talks saying, I'm really worried about the court's repu- reputation and I want to make sure it stays non-political. So we're all, everybody is afraid that Justice Roberts um, and he demonstrated this in an earlier abortion case, is so anxious not to rock the boat right. that he might find a way to say, oh, you know, stare decisis, we've got to respect it, even in the case of a case that was clearly wrongly decided. Um, so it's really um, uncertain which way they will go. It is very much certain, though, that there will be a a huge reaction, no matter which way that happens. I keep saying to the pro-life community, we have to be ready to get out in the street to support the court yeah. if they um, if they do the right thing. I was just going to ask you that question. What do we need to do to prepare? And that's both, you know, pro-lifers and, and the church itself, Catholics. How, how do we prepare for, for this decision um, and the aftermath? Right. So the first thing is, um, I, I, and I, I, maybe I'm a little bit more of a fighter than some other people. I mean, you need different no. personalities in the movement. <laughs> but, um, and, and, but people keep saying, really, you know, are we ready with crisis pregnancy centers? And there's two answers. Number one is um, you're never ready enough, right? Mm-hmm. Because there's so many people need help, which can there's be need. said of every charitable endeavor. Number two is, wow, have we done a lot, and should we be proud of ourselves? And for all of those who ever encounter the question from a pro-choice, you know, interlocutor, gee, do you really care about the born? At that point, I kind of melt into a Wicked Witch of the West puddle. I mean, you don't have to throw water on me. That's just the end of me. Because it is only the pro-life movement, only the pro-life movement, who has cared for women in crisis pregnancies by the thousands of centers in the United States. And so there is a tremendous amount of organizing and sort of taking stock and inventorying, do we have enough, and and how can we make it easier? Um, I mean, you know, anybody can, can Google you know, pro-life pregnancy care or pregnancy care and find thousands of our centers in the United States. How do we make that bigger, even more available, and even more attractive. The other thing to say, however, is that people need to know that if we get a truly pro-life outcome on this case, that the country is, is good with it, and that women are good with it, and that many, many states should be good with it. And when they get the chance to enact their laws, they ought to know that people want far more protection for the unborn than has been the case in the past. Right. Helen, what has worked? I mean, we have very brief time. What has actually worked to kind of change public opinion on this matter? Several things. Uh, I think number one has been um, just 
the pro-life movement is insanely um, well-organized and networked, and it tends to be, you know, a lot of women and moms in families who have kids and pass it on. So mm-hmm. I think that's a large part of it. Um, the other two, um, I think that the, the, the factor of truth, Everybody knows what we're talking about. Truth works. Yeah, a human and a live mother, a human and a live child. And we know that our sort of deepest core values are to respect life at the beginning of social justice. It's the core value in social justice. Um, So I think there's that. Um, And then I also think the other side has overreached, you know, to, to, to shout your abortion, et cetera, is just super, super unattractive. I guess I would add as other factors the ultrasound. I do think that has made the humanity of the life really apparent. I also think um, that the, the lack of uh, sort of the more acceptance of children born into single parenting circumstances and the sort of willingness to say a child is a child is a child um, mm-hmm. and to make way for all of them. Um, and then the crisis pregnancy center work. So I think it's, it's all of the above and the pro-life movement, which just I get you know, teary and affectionate thinking about them because I, I lived in most of their basements and, you know, <laughs> slept on their kids' bunk beds, traipsing around the country. They are relentlessly effective and positive and welcoming and strategic. And, and they, are, they will go down in history as one of the most effective, you know, both, both pastoral and charitable and political movements ever. I, I couldn't agree with you more, and I, I and you really have been a model um, for me all of these years too in your work, in your research, in your uh, carefully chosen words, and in your <laughs> feistiness, in your fight uh, to get this done. And so, Helen, I appreciate you uh, and all that you've said here. Well, that's very kind of you. I, I sometimes think I'm a, I'm a little too feisty, but you know, you need the lawyers in the movement too. Um, so, I thank you for saying that. Absolutely. Remember, for more news, analysis, and commentary, check out the National Catholic Register online at ncregister.com. Thanks for joining us here on Register Radio on EWTN. For Matthew Bunsen and our producer, Jeff Burson, I'm Jeanette DeMello. Until next week, God bless you. For more information about the National Catholic Register and about Register Radio, go to ncregister.com. Podcasts of Register Radio are posted on ncregister.com and on EWTN.com. Join us next week at this time for Register Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Archbishop Cordelione talks about the National Catholic Register. The Register's content is so critically important in the society we're living in now. There's an absence of the practice of religion in public life. So all the more important is it for people to be reading the Register so that they can acquire more understanding of our Catholic faith. I've appreciated the catechetical benefits of the content of the Register. It presents very clear Catholic teaching in a way that is easily digestible. To get six free issues, order online at ncregister.com forward slash radio or call 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. That's ncregister.com forward slash radio or 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. Call or click today. The National Catholic Register. Read faithfully.